Uh, I'd like to open by saying shalom and welcome to another episode of Community Relations Corner, uh, where we discuss issues of concern to New York's uh, Jewish community with friends and partners all over the city, the New York metropolitan area and the state. Uh, I'm your host, Michael Miller, the Executive Vice President and CEO of the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York, JCRCNY. And on each episode of Community Relations Corner, for our viewers, you certainly know, our regular viewers, we're joined by guests representing the political, religious, economic, and diverse community leadership in New York, many of whom I've had the honor and pleasure of getting to know over the course of my lengthy tenure here at JCRCNY. Together we'll discuss current events impacting the New York Jewish community and its neighbors, as well as the state of the city, the state of the state, the state of the nation, and we'll be touching on the state of the world. Today, we have uh, the great, great pleasure. It's really a delight uh, to have the New York State Comptroller, Thomas DiNapoli, known as Tom DiNapoli. Um, and welcome to you, Mr. Comptroller. Michael, it is great to be on the Community Relations Corner with you, my friend. And you mentioned your lengthy tenure. You forgot to use the word illustrious tenure as well. Uh, what a delight it's been for me over these many, many years back in my days in the legislature to get to know you and certainly to work with you and your team at JCRC and why I have learned much from you and have benefited from that partnership. And it's really a privilege to be with you. Thank you. My feelings towards you are uh, paralleled by your feeling towards me. We, we have a very, very warm and friendly relationship going back over years uh, during your days in the New York State Assembly. Before we begin what would normally be a standard um, interview, um, I think we should just spend um, a, a moment talking about what's happening in the Middle East. Uh, we'll get to a little bit later in the interview talking about your trips to, to Israel. Uh, but considering the, the, the violence and particularly last night, uh, the firing of more than 200 rockets from uh, Hamas-controlled Gaza into civilian Israel, into territorial sovereign Israel, as well as rockets being fired uh, towards uh, Jerusalem. Uh, th that is just something which uh, cannot be tolerated. JCRC has uh, condemned uh, Hamas and the other terrorist organizations for doing that. But I, I uh, want to give uh, you, Mr. Controller, uh, an opportunity to say a few words about this as well. Yeah, look, we certainly know uh... Israel is in the most dangerous neighborhood uh, of the world. That's not news. And we know tensions there are real and longstanding. But when you see uh, a, a terrorist organization like Hamas and, and the Palestinian militants take advantage of those tensions and use it as a pretext to launch an attack uh, on Israel, and, and we're not talking about one-off you know, missiles here and there. I mean, you, you're talking about a barrage. And I guess the latest news report that I heard before we started our conversation, uh, two Israelis were killed in Ashkelon. You point out that some of these uh, rockets and missiles have been directed towards Jerusalem, which is the home for Jews, Muslims, and Christians. I yeah. mean, you know, it, 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 the, the, the randomness of the attacks in terms of, of really indiscriminately targeting uh, the civilian population in Israel is... is heartbreaking, is distressing. It's a reminder of how important our strategic relationship is with Israel, the, the support for military aid to be able to respond and hopefully uh, intercept, you know, and prevent some of these rockets from landing. That's not always possible as we've learned. And that's not without sympathy for those who are killed uh, in the Gaza Strip as well. Uh, news reports are of some uh, number of children being, being killed. You know, what what the real number is, you know, will be determined over time. Uh, but, you know, look, the bottom line is this, Israel's enemies that are in very close proximity to its borders will look for any opportunity to take advantage of a situation, escalate it, and inflict, inflict pain, damage, and death on Israel. So, you know, as always, there's a lot to sort out, you know, in the tensions that are happening there. We, we certainly hope for a lasting peace at some point. It's certainly been elusive. But in the meantime, we must condemn uh, these attacks on Israel. And 
I, I just hope that at some point those that have some influence with uh, Hamas will uh, dial it back. Uh, it's, it, it's not the appropriate way to deal with uh, the many issues that exist in that part of the world. Yes, uh, I identify with everything that you have said. Um, you said it so effectively and um, directly. Uh, we could probably spend the, the, the balance of our hour together just talking about these issues. Um, we're going to go back to uh, what we had planned in terms of, of this conversation be, between uh, the, the two of us, uh, knowing that the controller of the state of New York uh, stands uh, with us in the Jewish community and many in the non-Jewish community as well, um, and in the state of New York um, with the state of Israel during these very, very difficult times. So um, thank you very much for always being there and for your solidarity. So let's now get back to uh, the, the interview. <laughs> um, and just uh, as I generally do when we start Community Relations Corner, I always like to find out who my guests are or how they define themselves. So maybe a little bit about your, your background. Um, I, I know you have lived on Long Island in Nassau County for a long period of time. Were, were you born, th born there? Um, and, and what motivated you to go into politics in, in the first place, leading to your election initially to the assembly? Well, I, I, I'll give you the short version of, of that. <laughs> I'm, I'm a uh, lifelong Long Islander, and actually my parents were both born and raised on Long Island in, in Roslyn. And I grew up in Albertson, the next the next town uh, over. So my family's been in that area for a long time. You know, like so many New Yorkers, you know, we're we're an immigrant story. My grandparents were the immigrants from Italy, and they uh, they met here, married, uh, lived in Brooklyn. But uh, after they got married, both sets of grandparents moved out to Long Island to have their families and raise my parents. So so we, we, we were, were connected to Brooklyn. Very often, all roads lead to Brooklyn, right? Uh, but but we've been out a long time. You're talking to a Bronx boy, so. Oh, just... okay. Well, you know, <laughs> the Bronx folks end up in Westchester. The Brooklyn folks end up in <laughs> Long Island. Um, but, um, you know, I certainly, um, from my parents, learned... Uh, you know, about being involved in the community. Um, a lot of my parents' involvement was tied to what we were doing as kids, you know, Boy Scouts, Little League and such. But I, I certainly had that sense of, of being involved in a larger community. So when I was in high school, and I was in high school during uh, those turbulent years of the late 60s, early 70s, there was a lot going on. And, uh, you know, the civil rights movement, the, um, uh, the big... Uh, disagreements over the war in Vietnam, uh, labor issues. I remember we used to go to supermarkets to make sure they were selling union grapes and lettuce, you know, with the United Farm Workers, the beginning of the environmental movement, you know, the first Earth Day happened when I was in high school. Uh, other social movements, the beginnings of, you know, what was called back then gay liberation movement. This is all this turbulence happening. And although I grew up in a pretty conservative household and neighborhood, uh, I very much was um, motivated, inspired, challenged by the times. And so as a high school student, I got very involved in some of those causes. I went to demonstrations against the Vietnam War, uh, very much advocated for 18-year-olds to be allowed to vote. You know, folks forget that you had to be 21 to vote back then, but if you were 18 and, and you were a, a, a male, uh, you were subject to the draft. And that was a big motivation that that folks that, that weren't supporting the war were being drafted, sometimes being killed. We lost a lot of lives in Vietnam, yet had no say in terms of the vote. So another cause was getting the voting age lower to 18, which happened. And it happened in my, it took effect in my senior year in high school. And so, because I've been active in all these issues and I was, I'm not bragging, but I was president of Minneola High School. I was elected <laughs> by my peers. And I went to school board meetings and I didn't like some of the things going on. And I said, you know what? I think I'm gonna run for the Board of Education. You know, Board of Education on Long Island, you're, you're elected, it's a public office. And I had the rather unique experience, Michael, is I, you know, I got a petition and my, my high school friends knocked on doors with me, reached out to people and uh, May 3rd, right? So it's not, you know, not too far from this date, May 3rd, 1972, I had the unique experience of my very first vote and I voted for myself <laughs> and, uh, and I won. I was the first 18-year-old elected to public office in New York. 
uh, I haven't won every race since then. I've won most of them. But that that experience of working within the system, you know, a lot of folks back then were working outside of the system. I chose to work within it. To be involved at a very community level with the Board of Education, a lot of important responsibility. It wasn't a partisan office, so I really had the chance to get to know many people, uh, regardless of political philosophy. You know, with school issues, it's not Republican or Democrat. It's, it, it's, it has to do with what's good for the school children. And that really brought me into the larger involvement. Uh, uh, my parents were good Republicans. I became a Democrat, you know, uh, but uh, I got involved with the Democratic Party. And, that led to my uh, being elected to the state assembly in 1986. So I spent 10 years on the board of education, two terms as president. And uh, I always had the desire to do public service full time. And I feel very blessed that I had two decades in the state assembly, the past 14 or so years as state controller. It's been a real privilege and certainly fulfilling the dream of that 18 year old a long time ago inspired by folks like the Kennedys and Martin Luther King hmm. uh, to be engaged and to try to make a difference. That, that's very much still who I am. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for all that background. What, what stands out from your uh, 14 years at the State Assembly uh, that you wanna share with, with, with our viewers? Um, what was the, the, the highlight of, of that timeframe that you were able to accomplish? Uh, before uh, you were appointed initially, before you were elected as, as, as state controller? Uh, wow. Look, it's 20 years, not 14. So oh, don't. <laughs> uh, 14 years is, yeah. yeah controller, yeah. Uh, maybe it's coming up on 15 soon. But, you know, it, first of all, it's a very different experience being a legislator versus being controller. So when I was in the legislature, I represented, you know, about 125,000, people in the neighborhoods you know where i grew up where my family was from and you advocated for your district um and i certainly tried very hard you know especially on the issues that were important in my area protecting the environment education uh increasingly towards the end of my tenure we spent a lot of time on health care uh, health insurance issues so i i think you know trying to respond to people at a very human level providing that you know very personal constituent service was always important but I also did try to be a legislator uh, in Albany in terms of making law. And there were many, many uh, issues uh, that I worked on, particularly with the environment. And the last five years, I chaired the Environmental Conservation Committee. So I, I, I'd have to say, while there are many specific bills that I'm, I'm proud of that became law, if I had to pick one, right, not to spend too much time on, on the assembly career, but, um, I had a great experience to be involved with many important Long Island stakeholders in preserving the Pine Barrens. The Pine Barrens are on the east end of Long Island over a key watershed that supplies pure drinking water for Long Island. Keep in mind, Long Island water is, is, is from the aquifer underneath, right? So it's not a surface drinking water supply. And there was real pressure to develop some of those most pristine lands. And, you know, working with Ken Laval in the Senate, my Senate counterpart, and with business community, environmental community, local government community, we came up with the Pine Barrens Protection Act. Right. Those who drive out, you know, to the East End this summer, they may see signs saying entering the Pine Barrens region. Well, that's because we came up with a legislative framework to implement an agreement that was reached back home to preserve uh, 50,000 acres of, of, of unspoiled uh, environmentally sensitive land overlaying a very key part of the aquifer and for a, a planned development for 50,000 acres around it. So preserving that core of the Pine Barrens, which to this day, uh, you know, is an important legacy for Long Island. If I had to point to one legislative achievement that I'd be most proud of, it would be that. Uh, there, there are many others, but uh, I'll just leave it at that, Michael. I, I, I enjoyed being in the assembly. I met some wonderful people. Um, but after 20 years, I'm glad I had the opportunity for a change and opportunity to be controller. Well, well yes, and that transition from uh, being a legislator to being in the executive branch um, is a significant tra a transition. Uh, but I'm not sure that our viewers or even many New Yorkers understand what a controller does, uh, what, what, and, and also how it impacts on day-to-day uh, -day in, the, in the state of, of New York. So can you give us a primer on that? 
Yeah, I'll give you a short primer, but you're absolutely right. I always say I have the best job in state government, but the one that nobody really is quite sure what it is that we do. So the title doesn't lend itself to explaining uh, the position. And, and I often say we're, we're in many ways the back office operation for state government. Uh, and the fact that folks may not know a lot about us is maybe a good thing. It means we're doing our job. You know, if, if, if you make a mistake, that's when people will know. So, you know, some of the basics, we, we do the payroll for, you know, for all state employees. We approve payments to uh, contractors, vendors that are doing business with the state. We, uh, we process the contracts that go to nonprofits that may be getting a state grant, local governments uh, as well. So again, if all that's working smoothly, then you're, you know, you're seamless, you're not gonna know. We uh, send out the pension checks for uh, the state retirees for the pension system. We also invest the assets of the, of the retirement fund uh, to pay for those pension benefits. It's, it's a big responsibility. So, and you're and you're the sole custodian of, of sole of fiduciary pension. for what will we will soon announce to be a, a over two hundred and fifty billion dollar uh, pension fund, one of the largest uh, state pension funds in the United States, third largest and one of the largest in, in the world. Fortunately, I have a very capable staff. I don't want people to think it's me sitting there with the Wall Street Journal and saying, buy this, sell that. It's a much more uh, sophisticated process than that. But we also audit state agencies. We audit local governments, so providing accountability. We don't decide how much money is, is, is allocated where. That's for the governor and the legislature. But after they do the state budget and they make those decisions, we follow the money, make sure it's being spent appropriately. So auditing state agencies, public authorities, local governments, a big responsibility. We also have a budget and policy group that analyzes the state budget, state fiscal practices. We, we are partners in administering the oil spill fund. We return people's lost money, unclaimed funds, very popular uh, activity that we're involved in. So, you know, in many ways, the, 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 the depth and breadth of the controller's office is, is significant, but um, it tends not to be, you know, uh, the most visible office. Uh, you know, it's always, a, you know, a, a history of the office that, um, especially in New York City, I might add, folks tend to know the city controller a little more than they know the state controller. Uh, upstate, it's obviously a little different. Uh, you don't have... Uh, too many controllers elected other than the state controller outside of New York City where you have the city controller. But uh, we have 2,800 employees uh, all across the state, mostly in Albany, fair number in New York City. We've been working remotely like most folks have been. In fact, our Albany office is the only one that's been open through the COVID-19 pandemic, but we're getting the work done. You know, we're, we're, we're getting the payments, doing the contracts, pension checks are, are going out. So uh, that's kind of the overall summary of, uh, of many of our responsibilities. And, and thank you. And, and what's the relationship that you have uh, professionally within the structure of the state of New York with the governor, as an example, or, or with the AG? Well, it's, a, it's an important question because you know there are many times people will say, well, what is it like to have the governor as your boss? <laughs> and, and I always have to say, well, actually, the governor is not my boss. Um, it's an independently elected office. And I think the reason that it is independently elected is that, because it is the oversight office, it is the chief uh, fiscal uh, office for the state, you know, that, that autonomy and that independence is key. And, and if you were appointed by uh, the governor or served at the pleasure of the governor or were subject to the authority of the governor, you wouldn't have that independence. And, and so whenever they framed this years, many, you know, many, many years ago to have this as an independent office, it was the right move. In fact, I will mention just as a bit of history that it used to be an appointed office back 1797 when it began. And, and what would happen is that the, the controllers would call out the legislature and the governor for misspending certain money. They'd get unappointed. And there were so many scandals that at one point they changed it from an appointed office to elected. elected Another little history, Millard Fillmore was the first elected controller of New really? York State. Really? Went on to become president, as you know, I'm not predicting anything, but I just point <laughs> that out as history. But that, that was to keep it independent. So um, same thing with the AG. The AG is the chief legal officer for the state. I'm the chief fiscal officer. The governor is the chief executive. But each of us are independently elected. You know, there are obviously times we work in partnership and we look forward to that, but especially with our audit authority over, over executive agencies, 
Michael, there's always a bit of a tension. It has nothing to do with who the governor is. Right. And, and I can say, having served now with, with three governors, it's always been the case. There's always a little bit of tension, but, but I think it's deliberately set up that way for there to be institutional tension, not, not to be adversarial, but it's part of the checks and balances. So, uh, so that responsibility to the voters, to the public, that's what preserves the independence of the office. And I think that's been key. So we work as best we can in any political environment in harmony, but we each have our own discrete roles. And sometimes, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, as I said, I won't call it conflict, I'll call it dynamic tension. And that's how it's set up. Um, and you opened the door uh, a few minute, moments ago with regard to the city controller. Uh, that people might be more familiar with. So what is your relationship? You're the state controller. How do you relate, again, structurally to the city, regardless of who the city controller is, how do you relate to the city controller? Well, uh, in many ways, we operate on parallel tracks. The responsibilities are very similar. There, there are certain things in the city charter that the city controller does a little different than, than we do, but a lot of the responsibilities are similar. We, we do have audit authority, not over every city agency, but over many. So what we try to do is coordinate with the city controls over so we're not you know, doing the same work. Uh, there have been times where uh, we have uh, done some joint audits. We haven't uh, done any of those of late, but there have been times, I've, I've served with a number of city controllers now. I feel like I've been around a while. I, you know, I began with, with Bill Thompson and John Liu and Scott, and there'll be a new controller um, pretty soon. So we do try to coordinate our efforts, but but you know basically we have separate roles. Uh, again, the city controller has some unique responsibilities in in, in city government, but um, uh, that accountability agenda we we both share, uh, and and the city has their own pension funds, right? So the controller, and they have boards, but the controller is right. the key you know person in terms of hiring staffs for the city pension funds. Even on pension fund, our, our staffs talk all the time. So mm -hmm. I don't want to say it's 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 fully coordinated because it's not. It's more parallel. But I've always enjoyed a, a great relationship uh, with the city controllers, and I look forward to that continuing. Oh, thanks. And before we, we leave this part of the interview, um, I really need to ask you about political aspirations. Uh, is there anything beyond the controllership that uh, Thomas P. DiNapoli is interested in? Well, thank you for getting my middle initial in. Um, <laughs> P is for Peter, people often ask. Um, you know, I, I say this repeatedly and sometimes people don't believe me, but I really do think I have the best job in, in state government. I, I didn't plan to be the controller. You know, as you remember, unusual yeah. circumstances uh, propelled me into this position. And fortunately the voters on three occasions have uh, have elected me. Um, you know, my plan is, is, is you know, to run again for state controller. Uh, and I, I say that, you know, with, with a lot of contentment with, with the position. So, you know, aspirations are, you know, to continue uh, in this job. My only caveat to that is that I never expected to be state controller and I've been around long enough to know circumstances sometimes uh, present themselves. I'm not anticipating any change other than my plan to run for state controller. And I'm very, I'm very content with that. Uh, to be my political biography. I'm, I'm not prepared to take the Millard Fillmore path, being <laughs> nominated vice president and then have the president die so you become president. So I, I'm not anticipating that. Uh, well, thanks very much uh, for your openness on, on that question as, uh, as per your openness all across the board. As a, let's talk about an issue which does impact on all of us uh, regardless of whatever position in life we have, and that's COVID, and that's this pandemic. Um, you have a unique position to see what the true financial impact um, has been of this pandemic. What actually happened uh, with regard to the state budget, and what does it mean in, in lay terms for all of us? Well, I mean, I'll keep it top line. Uh, and, and, you know, it's it's been an evolving picture. So if we go back to a year ago, yes, uh, the COVID came in in, in uh, you know in March, and what you really saw in uh, April and May is, is severe economic devastation. The economy being on hold, 
certainly at a human level, you know, many people uh, losing their jobs, losing their income, at the very least reduced income. For state and local government, for New York City, local governments as well as New York State, uh, tax revenue uh, way, way down. Yes. Sales tax were down like 27%, you know, in, 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 in that quarter uh, that was in, at the end of June 30th that was impacted by COVID. And there was a real sense that uh, how could we possibly uh, balance our budget, balance, balance, balance the books. So, you know, fast forward to where we are today, you saw slowly the economy recovering in 2020. So one gauge is sales tax revenue. The sales tax revenue has continued to be down compared to a year before, but, but the amount of decrease has, has gotten less and less. And somewhat unexpectedly, personal income tax collections, which again were, were down in the beginning of the year, started coming back. In fact, Division of Budget, uh, their projections going back to the fall, we kept saying their projections are off. They're, 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 we are gonna get better than they are projecting tax revenue from personal income tax. And in fact, you know, fast forward to the budget process that was just concluded uh, in April, uh, you saw a combination of factors, the economy recovering and, yeah. and the result was tax revenue coming in higher than projected, not necessarily back to pre-pandemic yeah. levels, but you know, unemployment rate going down, revenues coming in. And the big game changer, Michael, uh, was the federal uh, aid. You know, going back in 2020, you got some federal support reimbursed for COVID-19 related expenses, but with the change in, in the presidency, with the change in the House, the American Rescue Plan, billions of dollars coming into the state, certainly for state government, you know, over 12 billion over two years, billions for New York City, about, I think it's 5 billion for New York City, over 5 billion, close to 5 billion for local governments outside of New York City, money for schools, for hospitals. That really created a very different dynamic. So the budget, when the governor first presented it, which was gonna be a very lean budget with cuts, the budget that was concluded, in fact, be, largely because of the federal money, uh, was a very different budget. And then, as you know, uh, the legislature made the judgment that a lot of folks were hurt uh, significantly by COVID and there were many issues that hadn't been addressed adequately, even pre-COVID. So some new revenues were put in place, mobile sports betting, legalized adult use cannabis, right. increase on uh, taxes for upper income New Yorkers. It could be debated, you know, the merits on each of those, but it happened. That's the role of the legislature and the governor to work that out. So you had increased revenue from, from the tax changes, significant money from Washington, an improving economy. So the budget that was put together made significant new investments, particularly in education uh, and healthcare, a number of other priorities for the legislature. You know, I certainly think it'll help us continue to heal. Long-term, what do we care about in the controller's office? You know, when you're in the legislature, you look very short-term. How do I get this budget done? What do I need for my district? You know, what kind of, uh, to use the old phrase, horse trading do I need to do so everybody gets what they, enough of what they want? From the controls perspective, we say long-term, what's the impact of decisions today? So we're waiting for the updated financial plan because what I want to see is what will this do to the out-year budget gaps that we've traditionally had in New York? Yeah. And, and are we aligning on a recurring basis our revenue and our spending? And, and you know, especially on personal income tax, because that's very volatile, will some of these tax changes actually not produce the result that people uh, expect. You hear it all the time, I'm sure. A lot of folks, especially after learning about being remote and being in Florida, wherever, you know, many folks have been talking about maybe leaving New York. I hope that doesn't happen. Um, but I think that's the kind of thing we need to look at and be careful about. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that's always the case with regard to balancing budgets of having one shots. Um, and so the federal uh, stimulus money is that is that one shot and you say the, the, the following year and the year after that, uh, can the economy uh, come back and just take a look at a couple of industries. Uh, one is the arts um, and, and Broadway as an example. And a second one is, is tourism. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I was in, in, in the city yesterday and just walking uh, a couple of blocks, I passed about three hotels. Um, those hotels before the pandemic were packed um, 
and tourism hasn't come back and when will it come back? Uh, so what are what are the projections here for the recovery of yeah. the metropolitan area? Yeah, and, and, and you raise a good point uh, on, on the federal assistance not being forever. And again, that, that gets back to the long-term uh, perspective that we wanna bring to the discussion about uh, state finance, the same is true for the city. We've done a series of reports on uh, the sectors of, of New York City's economy. Uh, retail, uh, restaurants, tourism. Um, look, it, it, it's anybody's guess how the re how long the recovery will take. You know, most folks seem to think it will be, you know, not a question of months, but a question of years. You, you know, there's no doubt that that whether you're talking about uh, the tourism industry or 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 the subset of it, the restaurant uh, piece of it, uh, severe job loss are early on. You're, you're certainly seeing, uh, you know, some signs of recovery, but uh, it's all tied together, right? So, you know, Broadway will start to reopen in September, you know, with a limited number of shows. We see more restaurants, you know, capacities being increased, outdoor dining with the warmer weather. But again, the, the, these are going to be slow steps. And, you know, we need to see people coming back into the city, whether yeah. that those are the day trippers from Long Island and, and uh, you know, in New Jersey and upstate or folks that would want to fly in from other states. You know, one of the big factors, Michael, is the, the, the loss of, of tourists, tourists from overseas. Yep. The, the overseas tourists spend more money than domestic tourists. Interestingly enough, uh, those from China spend the most uh, out of anybody. So with all the restrictions that are still existing, you know, when will we see that international tourism uh, come back? And, and we also have to be candid. We're all reading the papers. The comfort level of people to come back is not just a question of which venues will be open, although that's a piece of it, uh, but it's also a question of public safety. And obviously we have big issues there. You know, the shootings in Times Square just over the weekend, right? They were, you know, they were, they were tourists uh, involved in that. I mean, you know, I know everybody's concerned and everybody's talking about it, but we, it's something that we have to deal with. People feeling comfortable riding the trains again and the, you know, on the subways again. That has to do you know, with the office workers coming back as well, because they come in and they spend a lot of money. So my, my I'm, I'm talking to you from uh, Maiden Lane in the city. Mm. Uh, generally I'm in Albany, but I have to say the past week or two when I've been in the city, I see more foot traffic than I've seen you know, for a number of months. Some of that is weather, some of that is reopening. You know, but to the point of your question, the, the tourism sector is a key part of getting the economy back. We need to see coordination between the city and the state. We haven't always seen that. We, you know, obviously the federal help with, with the, the, the PPP loans and the other federal aid targeted, you know, to shuttered venues and to the arts sector, it's key. Thank you, Chuck Schumer. Uh, being majority leader has been a big boost for New York, you know, in this yeah. regard. But it is going to be, it's going to take time. It's going to take years. It's not going to take months. But we need to stay positive. We need to, you know, promote more of these uh, outdoor venues, you know, for the arts. Uh, people, will, I think, will feel, feel safer in that regard. There's a lot of work to do, but it needs to be a coordinated effort. And we're very pleased and thrilled and comforted to know that uh, the New York State Controller is, is Tom DiNapoli, and he has all these interests at heart um, as you conduct uh, your, your responsibilities uh, professionally up, up in, in Albany or here in the city, wherever you are in the state. Uh, and one of your responsibilities, speaking about funding streams, is unclaimed funds. And I certainly want our, our viewers to be aware of the role that uh, the state controller plays uh, in that very, very in, in important dimension of the controller's office. Well, it's, it's, I always say it's the fun part of our job. People don't realize how they can get separated from their money. Usually it's an old bank account or a check that wasn't cashed. It could be like a health insurance check. It could be an individual. It could be a, a, a business. It could be a nonprofit. It could be a synagogue, you know, yeah. any, any number of ways that uh, there might be uh, an account or money that after a certain period of time, uh, if it's declared dormant or abandoned, gets turned over to the state controller. Uh, for us to hold on to in perpetuity. People say, well, you know, what do you do with the money? Well, actually the legislature appropriates money, but the accounts stay active uh, forever. 
and we keep enough in reserve based on historic trends to return money. And if everybody came out of the woodwork tomorrow to claim this money, we'd have to uh, present it. So for everybody listening, if you remember nothing else of what Michael and I are talking about, when uh, you can't sleep tonight, go to your computer, just put in your search engine, New York State Controller, go to our website, click on unclaimed funds. We make it very easy for you now to search our database and apply online. If, if there's a match, you can get a check in a matter of days. We have accounts now valued over $16 billion, billion mm -hmm. with a B. So some of these accounts go back to the 1940s. Probably some of them will never be claimed. Also, if you find the name of a relative who may be deceased, uh, parent, grandparent, you can claim uh, that account if you're the rightful heir. We may need a little more documentation. In addition to the website, we have an 800 number that we uh, staff during regular business hours, Monday through Friday. And that number is 1-800-221-9311, 1-800-221-9311. We want to return that money. We're returning, uh, I think, about a million and a half dollars a day uh, right mm. now. During COVID, a lot of people were sitting home with their computers. <laughs> we had a big spike in the number of people claiming money, and, and the money came in handy. So, uh, But I'm glad you asked that, Michael, because we, we, we have a lot of money we want to return to people. I know a lot of folks have been hurting out there through the COVID time. Yeah. No reason for us to hold on to this money. We want to get it back to you. Right, and especially for estates, that, as the controller said, um, if you have a, a, um, a deceased relative uh, that you are responsible for that estate, uh, put these, their social security number uh, in, into the website and into that form, and you'll see whether the state is holding uh, money that uh, could be helping helping you, uh, just or rather than sitting uh, in in some account uh, in in the state of New York. Okay, um, well now let's travel back overseas where we started the conversation, but on a much more positive note, uh, with New York State, the state of New York, and uh, the state of Israel. What is the economic relationship between New York and Israel? Well, it's, it's obviously a very close relationship for many reasons. I mean, I, I think it'd be fair to say New Yorkers have a very strong connection to the state of Israel, even New Yorkers who aren't Jewish. I mean, I think that's been part of our culture and our history, you know, for a long period of time. So certainly the, the, the presence of, of Israeli entrepreneurs in New York uh, is certainly very clear in, 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 in you know, and obviously support for Israel in very tangible ways from the New York community is clear. I'm very uh, pleased that, you know, in terms of a dollars and cents connection, uh, we have kept a, a very close tie through our pension fund and, and the monies that uh, we've invested uh, in Israel in a number of ways, which I think has strengthened the economic tie. Uh, you know, we have now, there's always, you know, with investments, over a period of time, you know, some of them you exit and you, you get the benefit of it. But, you know, anticipating our conversation, Michael, we, we did a quick run of the numbers where we're at today. We have a, a, you know, close to $700 million of, of, of money uh, that New York has invested, some, much of that pension fund money. Uh, uh, and, you know, I, I believe, first of all, it's been a good, uh, from an economic point of view, a good and safe uh, investment uh, climate for us. Uh, you know, as an example, uh, Israel bonds, New York State has always been either number one or number two. We're always competing with Ohio lately because they, 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 you know, we, we, we do like, uh, you know, a little bit of a competition with Ohio, but we, you know, we, we, we've done in 2020 another round of purchase of Israel bonds. And again, that's part of our fixed income portfolio, safe, good return, uh, you know, so we do it because it's it's in our economic and financial interest, but it also is a secure investment as part of our fixed income. And then, you know, we've had other investments in, in terms of um, public equities, you know, Israeli companies that are listed. But I've been most proud of, of, of some of the innovative ways that we have leveraged more of our private equity investments uh, in the state of Israel. Uh, as you well know, because on our last trip there together, you join me in some of the conversations and meeting with, uh, with with wonderful entrepreneurs and and those managing funds in Israel to talk about ways in which we could build on our prior partnership. And when we came back from that trip, you remember Vicky Fuller, who was then our chief investment yeah. officer, was with us. 
we, we announced a, a $400 million uh, new program with Hamilton Lane as our investment partner on the ground there of private equity investments in, in Israel. We've gotten now about half of that out the door. Hmm. And, and so again, it, these have been good investments for us. But getting back to the origin of your question, and something that you and I heard when we when we we traveled together on that last trip, many of the Israeli startups, you know, Israel is a small country, right? So so in terms of their market for their products or their services, they 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 don't limit it, you know, just to Israel. They have a global reach, and very often, the companies that we're investing in open up offices in the U.S. Very often in New York. Right. So although we don't we think of it as an investment in, in Israel, the reality is it right. becomes an in-state investment in New York right. because they're, they're operating offices here, they're hiring people here. Right. So all of this creates an ecosystem of, of economic uh, connectedness right. that I think is, I mean, look, Israel is our best ally, uh, a reliable ally, and for security of investments, that's where you want to have your money uh, being put to work. So, so I'm proud of, of what has been a growing relationship, uh, certainly during my tenure as controller. It's been good for our investments, good for New York, good for our retirees, and I think it's certainly helped to strengthen the Israeli economy as well. Oh, very much so. And we know those uh, there are those who wish to harm Israel's economy and have launched a boycott, divestment, and, and sanctions movement, uh, BDS. Uh, the, the governor issued an executive order a number of years ago um, an anti-BDS executive order. Um, how have you been able to implement Governor Cuomo's order? Well, uh, it gets back to our earlier question about different roles. So we work with the, the Office of General Services, which is charged with uh, overseeing implementation of the governor's executive order. But we have our own uh, order, you know, uh, because the governor's jurisdiction doesn't apply to our pension fund. So we uh, came up with an anti-BDS policy, if you will, an, an order from me to screen uh, any possible investments. And we so because if a company is engaging in, in a boycott, divestment or sanction activity, we don't want New York money uh, to be invested in that company or supporting it. So as part of our, our corporate governance group, uh, as part of our pension fund, they do a continual monitoring, and, and we, we've you know engaged a, a partner uh, advisory services in that regard. So whenever there is any um, report or suspected activity of a, of a company engaging in BDS, we then follow up if they're in our uh, portfolio of companies to really ask the hard questions to, to determine whether or not uh, the reports are accurate. If if in fact we, we find valid reason to suggest that they are engaged in supporting BDS, uh, we then uh, restrict investments that we will no longer invest in those companies. Fortunately, we've only had a limited, a very, very limited number. I think actually now there's only one uh, investment that, that is on the restricted list because of BDS activity. But I think between what the governor did in terms of those who do business with the state, what we did with the pension fund sent a very strong message that New York will not support uh, in any way uh, companies that engage in, in, in BDS activity. And you know, some have, some have challenged me on this. I said, well, what is freedom of speech? But I said, look, I said, I, I can give you my own opinion about why support for Israel is key and why the BDS movement, which is meant to destabilize the economy of Israel, it should not be supported. There are you know, most important ally in that region. We should not be contemplating that. But, I have another reason, and that is because of what we just talked about, the economic ties, uh, the mutual ties. Harming the Israeli economy, given the $700 million, close to a billion dollars we have invested there, that will harm us. If, if, if the Israeli economy is harmed, our investments will be harmed. And, and for me as fiduciary for the pension fund, I, I can't contemplate that. Maybe that's a self-interest, but okay. it's, a, it's a real interest. So, so you know, I... I you know, I, I get very concerned, you know, when I, and sometimes we even hear it uh, among some of our fellow New Yorkers, you know, where they, they, they think BDS uh, makes sense. It's, it, it is, it is a, meant to be a destructive policy. We should not support it. And as New Yorkers, given our connection, we can't afford to support it. You know, that's a self-interest. 
Well, it's right. The, the, the ROI, the return on, on investment uh, would be harmed uh, if, if there'd be support for boycotting and divesting, et cetera. Um, but I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, there was a precedent associated with this with regard to Ireland. A am I correct? Well, it, yes, because Ireland, they were, they, they were having legislation, you know, that, that in effect would be supportive of, 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 of BDS. And we, we wrote, and actually we worked with you and your team to say, if, if you're going to adopt that legislation, that, from our point of view, would have us question any investments that we have in Ireland. Right. And I, I think they got the message and, and, you know, they backed off. I'm not saying right. that the issue is, is dead over there. I don't think it's reared its head lately, but, but we, we made the point that if you want us to be an investment partner, you know, with companies that are operating in Ireland, you can't be part of this because that would violate our policy right. to be against BDS. So, you know, it's interesting that you raise that. It shows the importance of being vigilant, you know, not just with our own, in our own little world, but this, right. unfortunately, as as we know, you know, there there are those, uh, particularly in Europe, who have been you know buying into this, and you know, we have to be opposed to it wherever it rears its head. Great, thank you. Um, let's talk a little bit on the lighter side in regard to your trips to Israel. You had traveled to Israel uh, with JCRC, I know, um, uh, at least twice uh, as a New York State Assembly member. Um, and of course, the trip that you took as New York State Controller, and our viewers should know full well that the uh, controller uh, paid for his own trip uh, on that trip as State Controller, and his uh, team that went with him was paid by the controller's office, not paid uh, by, by JCRC. Uh, JCRC paid for my being on the trip, and I was honored to, uh, to accompany the controller on that trip. But uh, what, what kind of stands out, as I said, on, on the lighter side, uh, as the highlight for you of any one of the trips. We don't have time to talk about all of them, but uh, with all your trips uh, to Israel, being in the country, um, and, and as, uh, as a, a Christian as well, it, is, is it on a religious side? Is it the, the topography, it, uh, the borders? Um, what, what might it be? Wow, all of the above. So I know we have another two hours in our conversation, so I can cover, I can cover it all. And so, well, a couple of thoughts. I mean, uh, uh, I've been to Israel five times, actually. Uh, uh, so not always with you, Michael, but <laughs> I've enjoyed, I've, been, I've learned so much from the trips with you, and that certainly uh, is uh, a time that I will always uh, cherish and value. Your, uh, what you have done not just with me, but so many elected officials to really, you know, expose us to what Israel is all about uh, has been, you, you've been an, the unofficial ambassador and what an incredible gift you have been to all of us in that regard. Um, you know, so much stands out, you know, on the lighter side and maybe even on the less lighter side. You know, first of all, I, so my first trip there was in 1987. And the last trip was what, uh, what, two, three years ago when you and I went. Each of those trips, it was, the dynamism of the country and the evolution of the country has been remarkable. Um, so much going on. And even with uh, the, the challenges, one of the trips I took um, was right about the time that uh, the tensions were, were mounting with the Gulf War and like nobody was there. We, 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 we was with um, Congressman, Scheuer, Congressman Scheuer led a delegation, mm -hmm. uh, the late Jim Scheuer. And, uh, you know, that certainly was a, you know, a, a more stark time. The, when I went in 1987, I, re I remember I, I came back and I spoke at uh, um, Temple Emmanuel in Great Neck, Rabbi Whittem invited me to speak after the trip. And I was full of, you know, anybody that goes to Israel for the first time, Jewish or Christian, whatever, such enthusiasm for it. It was about two weeks before the first Intifada started. So, you know, and I, I came with hope and positivity and, and then, you know, other things happened. So kind of that ever-changing landscape and the highs and the lows of what happens there. But I, I think that, that, I mean, obviously on a personal level, what, what I always say, what, whatever faith you have, however much you have of it, 
you, you cannot help but be blown away when you're walking through Jerusalem. I mean, it's just an incredible experience. And I do remember, you know, one of my most vivid uh, memories from my first trip there uh, was on a, on a Sabbath evening, we went down to the, to the Western Wall. And as the sun was, was going down, uh, you had it all. You had uh, the Muslim call to prayer ringing out. You had the church bells were clanging and the yeshiva students were dancing to right. welcome the Sabbath. Right. All right there, right. All, 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 all right there. And, uh, and everybody was stopped, whatever, whatever their business was, whatever disagreements or fights, the, the spirituality of that moment and to see, you know, the, 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 the Muslim vendor with his, you know, with his prayer rug and to hear the church bells and to see the yeshiva students, it was like, it was a peaceful moment, a beautiful moment and a reminder how sacred the place is for everybody and kind of underscores why is peace so elusive to this sacred area to, to, to everyone? Um, I, I think the energy and the resilience of the Israeli people, startup nation, you know, certainly you, I, from 1987 to, you know, to, to, to this decade, to see the evolution of the Israeli economy, to see the assimilation of, of immigrants, right? So back to 1987 and over the years to see uh, the Ethiopians and, and I yeah. saw one of the centers where they were being integrated and the Russians. And, you know, I think it, it, it was a Beersheba. They had an overabundance of, 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 of uh, concert uh, cellos and maestros. And, you know, they had an influx of all these wonderfully talented people from Russia. So they had like multiple symphonies and orchestras. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the ability, and I'll try to wrap it up because I, I could go on for two hours. The ability, which I think often is missed in the press here, people do figure out how to get along day by day. A lot more than we, I mean, we, sometimes there's this image that, you know, whenever I go to Israel, some of my friends have been saying, oh, be careful, be careful. I have to say, even when I was there, you know, at the time of the, the Gulf War and, and there weren't too many tourists there, because of the Israeli priority on security, I've never felt unsafe there. Now, there are times where you have to be more careful. I understand that. And some of the trips, you know, uh, into the West Bank and so on, obviously you needed to take certain precautions, but the ability of people, even on a very personal level to coexist, Arab and Jew, uh, it happens more than, than perhaps credit is given for that. I'm not saying everybody loves each other, that there are intentions, but, but there's a lot more getting on. Why? everybody's on top of each other. And, and, you know, to your point about borders, I think for Americans, we, we have no sense about proximity to other countries. I mean, unless, you know, my friends in Buffalo, you know, they look at Canada, right? But um, not exactly a hostile relationship. But, but how, how close that neighborhood is. And I remember on one of our trips, we were down in, in Sidrot, uh, and we went to one of the homes where a, a missile had recently been fired from Gaza. So in reading about what's happening, you know, yesterday and today, you know, I remember, Michael, we were, we were on a hill looking right into the Gaza Strip. There was right. no, no, no distance. Kobe's hill. I remember we were there for a while and you said, all right, we've been up here too long. We've got to, you know, go back. So, so I think that, uh, I think that understanding and realization of, of just how, um, in many ways precarious Israel's existence always has been. I, I, I don't think, I hate to say this way, but unless you see it, you might not really understand what that means. And now with technology being what it is and more sophisticated weapons and you know, well-financed uh, belligerence towards Israel, Israel can never let its guard down. And America could never take for granted how fundamental our partnership is with Israel to keep it safe and secure. And, and, and uh, you know, so on, on the lightest note, I don't want to get negative on, or heavy on it. I, I Look, Israel's been through a lot. Israel will continue to survive, will continue to thrive. The resilience of the people will prevail, even over the internals, right? Everybody's curious, you know, what will be the new government? How will it be formed and so on? Israel will get through it, uh, but we have to be willing to stand by Israel. And uh, I believe the resolve in America is still there. I think it's a bipartisan 
support. Maybe there have been some cracks in that at times, but uh, you know, certainly from a New York perspective, uh, and thanks to leaders like you that keep us informed about what's happening, I think the New York support for Israel is as strong as it's ever been, and certainly as long as I'm around, be it in office or as a private citizen, you know, my support will be there. Thank you. Thank you for all of that. Um, we really do have to wrap up, but I, I don't not want to ask you the following question, meaning I'm going to pose the question regarding anti-Semitism. We just had the experience up in Riverdale of some uh, horrible acts of anti-Semitic uh, violence. Um, what role can a controller play? What role can, can you play in your ability to audit organizations and individuals to assist uh, in, in combating hate and anti-Semitism across the board? Again, it's not just hate against the Jewish community, but sure. where the Asian community is also. Yeah, uh, we see those terrible incidents. And I was very proud to stand with you in uh, Queens at Queens. the uh, anti-Asian hate rally, was it uh, two weeks ago, a week and a half ago. Look, uh, we're not perfect here in this country. And even in a diverse community like New York, we see these instances of, of bigotry and hate directed at, at, at any group that's defined as the other. You know, in the case of Riverdale, I guess they apprehended the individual who was responsible. But again, uh, it underscores the importance of vigilance and of speaking out, you know, when these incidents happen. So what we've tried to do uh, in, in this regard is, um, with our audit function, look at uh, some of the programs and laws that have been set up in New York uh, to deal with this. So we did an audit of um, reporting of hate crimes uh, by law enforcement, particularly uh, NYPD and also at the state level, uh, Department of Criminal Justice Services. And we found some challenges there, not, not fully reporting, some not clear understanding about how to report which incidents. And if you don't have the data, you know, you can't have the response. So we saw some progress because of that audit. We also did an audit uh, a couple of years ago on uh, what's happening in the schools. Uh, there, you know, we have a, a New York state law, it's called Dig Dignity for All Students uh, Act, which is meant to uh, guard against any incidents of discrimination, harassment, bullying of students in the public schools based on their religion, their ethnicity, their race. Uh, uh, gender, sexual orientation. And again, we found a very, you know, uneven picture in terms of how we were protecting, you know, our youngest citizens in, in this regard. We made some strong recommendations to state education department, and we're pleased that we've seen some progress in that regard. So, you know, I've, I've said to my audit folks, besides looking at dollars and cents, and that's obviously a lot of what we do in the controller's office, right? We're called the bean counters, you know? Yeah. Let's look at at the important programs that are relevant to people's lives and, and let's audit against those. So, you know, we'll, we'll look for other opportunities because it's, I'm sad to say, you know, uh, despite all the great efforts, particularly of the faith communities, we still have people that, uh, that just uh, seek uh, to hurt uh, those who they define as, as the other or who, for whatever reason they seem to have a grievance with and whether that's targeting you know, a synagogue or, you know, or a church or a mosque or, you know, of late, uh, a, the anti-Asian uh, violence and, and harassment, you know, we can't let our guard down. Uh, and it's important why, you know, it, it, as we wrap up, I just want to say again, the work that JCRC New York does, not only in terms of knitting together a Jewish response to these issues, but the interfaith work, I think has been so key. Thank you. And again, in that regard, Michael, I know none of us believed you would ever retire, and I gather that's going to happen. Uh, I just want you to know, number one, we don't, we don't expect you to be on the sidelines completely. And number two, your, your leadership of JCRC New York has been so impactful. For folks like me, really has been transformative in many ways, and I, I, don't, I don't say that lightly. And, and your ability to, to just navigate through all the communities during good times and during bad times, when people are feeling under siege or when people are, are, are feeling positive about where we're at, you have been such an indispensable link in the fabric that makes New York the special place that it is. I'm sure I speak for everybody that's on this you know, podcast and the thousands out there that are gonna be honoring you as you wrap up your tenure. Uh, you stand out really as a beacon of inspiration for all of us. 
And if we had more leaders like you, we would have less trouble in our, in our city and in our state. And I, 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 God bless you and Phyllis and your family. I want you to stay healthy, stay involved. I'm gonna to continue to call upon you for guidance. And I know you're still gonna be in the forefront of, of fighting for all the good causes, not just for Israel, not just for the Jewish community, but for what will make us a more caring and inclusive society here in New York. And to me, you will always be one of my heroes and one of my champions. And if for no other reason, I'm glad I ran for office. So I got to know you, Michael Miller, over the years. Oh, wow. Thank you very, very much. I'm, I'm really humbled by, by uh, what you had to say. And I, I feel uh, towards you the, the same warmth that you expressed uh, toward, towards me. Uh, Tom DiNapoli is really uh, a mensch. Um, and we, we can say that term uh, with, without uh, commitment and unseriously. That, that's not true with regard to Tom. Uh, Thomas P. DiNapoli um, is, is a, a, a true mensch and a man of his word. Um, and somebody who really is interested in the people. And uh, so it's been my pleasure to, uh, to have befriended you and uh, you, your pleasure, I guess, to have befriended me. Uh, we'll still maintain contact with one another. And most importantly, I have to thank you, express my gratitude for this delightful hour that we've spent together having this, this conversation, which could go on longer, but we'll bring it to a, a halt now. Uh, my, my thanks to you, to your team, uh, to Eric Greenberg and the, all the people in, in your shop uh, who, who worked tirelessly to ensure uh, the success of the controller's office, but particularly to Tom DiNapoli himself. Thank you so much for joining us. I thank our viewers uh, for, for watching and listening and look forward to seeing you again on the next episode of Community Relations Corner. Thank you very much. Shalom and be well. Thanks, Michael.